0: How does that really work? Like, if you can share a few examples in terms of how does using a core biomarker in the world of executive performance, executive coaching actually uh, make a difference?
1: Okay, so, yeah, I'll give you two good examples. Um, one, whether you want to call this uh, biohacking biomarker, one example is this I, because I'm still a licensed clinical and neuropsychologist. I work with a lot of a lot of people. High performers come to me now, especially since the pandemic, and and they want to know whether they have ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, And the traditional way to diagnose this is you look at questionnaire data, you look at their, you ask them a number of questions. Do they meet criteria for the symptoms? But there are biomarkers that that are not 100% accurate, but that are highly predictive. For example, we do something I do is quantitative EEG which is an EEG like you'd get at a neurologist's office or a sleep study, except we compare it to a large sample of normals. And we look at basically if there's deviations in terms of, let's say fast beta waves or slow theta waves or delta waves relative to healthy individuals of the same age. Right. And that's uh, that's something I do with most of my clients. So for example, they want to know if they have ADHD. And what I'll do is one of the things, I've one piece of information is this quantitative EEG. And interestingly, what we find is what we know from the literature is about 85% of people with ADHD have excessive slow waves uh, or underactivity or under arousal in the brain, particularly the frontal lobe and the central uh, top layer of the brain, the, the central and frontal parts of the brain have excessive slow waves. And EEGs are actually quite stable unless you're just pounded down three cups of coffee or you didn't sleep at all last night or you smoked marijuana. Uh, Other than that, if you're a little bit stressed uh, or a little bit tired, it doesn't have a big effect on the the quantitative EEG uh, when we compare you to national norms. And what we see is, like I said, 85% of individuals with ADHD have excessive slow-wave activity, again, under-arousal, under-activation. This is why the treatment of choice by physicians is a prescription of stimulant medication, which to a lot of people seems confusing, especially when you think of ADHD children or adults who tend to be hyper, talking fast, uh, can't sit still. Yeah. Why would you give them a stimulant? You want to slow them down, not speed them up. But it's because their brains are under aroused and they need to constantly move and do things and change subjects to stay at a normal level of arousal in their brain. And so this is why stimulant medications are prescribed. So one of the things we look at is, do they have this biomarker? Uh, It used to be called in the literature called the theta-beta ratio. So theta is slow wave activity. Beta is faster wave activity. And when they it depends on the age category. Uh, Adults is about two point something uh, ratio of everyone has more theta than beta, uh, but you don't want it much higher than that. And if you do, that's highly consistent with individuals with ADHD. But it's not just with ADHD. It helps me understand a person who comes in. So someone who's got troubles with motivation, troubles with, uh, you know, being as good as they want to be in their sport or in in their life, if they have a brain map that suggests this, you know, this can determine what, in a way, I quote unquote, prescribe for them in the sense of, what kind of maybe i don't sell supplements but like what supplements they may want, may want to look into and always talk to their doctor right. what kind of brain training or neurofeedback would be helpful whether they should be using caffeine and how much they should be using whether they should try to meditate so all these things play a role that's one example is the theta beta uh, ratio is a biomarker right. that we use to help uh, with identification of ADHD the other biomarkers we use, another main one is, is basically heart rate variability or HRV, like we we're saying. HRV is, uh, as you know, cardiologists discovered this uh, years ago that it helps predict heart attack risk with individuals with heart disease. But these are wearing 24 halter monitors. Then we know uh, obstetricians use it to measure the state of the health of the baby in, in the womb. And exercise physiologists know that HRV, or heart rate variability, goes down when we uh, are overtrained, and it's uh, any high-level athlete should be measuring their HRV, uh, preferably, in my opinion, with something like an Oura Ring. I'm sure you're quite familiar yeah, with these. Yeah. Um, you want an overnight measure, in my opinion, as opposed to measuring it, you know, every day at uh, nine o'clock. Because there's so many factors that can affect that, whether you've gone to the bathroom, how hungry you are, how well you slept just before you woke up, whether you've eaten any food, all of these, and whether you've checked a a stressful email, can artificially affect your HRV. And so a longer overnight average is better and of course now we know we've known this for a long time psychophysiology or basically the profession that I'm involved in as well we know that hrv goes down when we are psychologically stressed or of course we know for sick so anything's wrong with our nervous system or hrv drops so having uh, knowing someone's hrv baseline and again you want to know this over a longer period of time so ideally uh, the higher level clients that sometimes I work with will have an Aura ring and or uh, some sort of whoop strap or something they use that measures over an HRV. And we look for deviations in that to help determine. Because you know, some people uh everyone's got a different baseline, like the RMSSD, which is the main HRV metric that, for example, Aura Ring uses. This uh some people, like mine is on average 80. 80 milliseconds, whereas some people it's 15 and they get really upset and think there's something wrong with them. But this is, it's better to look at your relative change. So these are ways that we do use uh, biomarkers in a way to to help with performance. Um, there's some other things I do. For example, I do something called psychophysiological stress testing. Right. and What that means is it's a standardized set of a stimuli that's often used in research, but we use this with athletes and we use this uh, to measure stress levels. So essentially we have someone come to the office, we sit them down, we use quite fancy equipment and we measure everything from heart rate, sweat response, temperature, muscle tension, heart rate variability, and we do an EEG at the same time. And what we do is we have them sit down for about two minutes with eyes open and eyes closed, doing nothing to get a baseline and then we have these standardized stressors. I won't say exactly what they are. They're not traumatic in any way, but they're stressful things I need to do in front of a computer or with my assistant. And we measure what does our physiology do during the stressor. And what happens after each stressor, they have about a 70 second rest period. What happens after that? And so we want to know how they're doing. I'll give you an example. I did a lot of work with one of the local police services. I still work with a different police service right now. And we were following the uh, high-risk officers. So these are the specialty groups, like the homicide units, the tactical, which is the SWAT team, accident reconstruction unit. These are people you deal with, people who get badly injured and car accidents uh, and pick up bodies, things like this. And they wanted me to check in on them every year. Traditionally, this is called safeguarding. Traditionally, this involves simply seeing a psychologist once a year, and the psychologist asks, how are you? And they I, most of them, I know policing, most of them were going to say, I am perfectly fine. And now what we did, we did this for about three years. We stopped during COVID, but uh, the, what we found was a lot of these officers would say they're fine. We do a psychophysiological stress profile. We'll see they're not as fine as they perceive themselves to be. And we give them feedback. We show them the graphs. And we say, look, this is what we'd like your sweat response after this, during the stressor, we expect it to go up. When you're resting, we expect it to come down. This, the sweat response, is a pure measure of sympathetic arousal right. or stress. Yeah. And you'll see like a lot of these, it keeps going up like a staircase over the test. And I say, like this is interesting. So this is a 20-minute test, imagine you're facing much more severe stressors throughout the day. You may not be noticing or be aware that you're having stress, but your body is having a hard time regulating this stress. So this was a real, like the the officers love this because it was objective data that could help them uh, see what they couldn't see. So these are just three examples of how I use basically physiological or neurological uh, metrics to help people understand themselves.
0: What's really fascinating is the fact that the biomarkers or the methods that you mentioned, the theta-beta ratio, uh, HRV, especially, these are both on the spectrum of performance. Of course, athletes do use it. In some cases, you use the first one, the theta-beta ratio to detect uh, brain activity, ADHD. At the same time, Mm -hmm. uh, these are quite applicable for, apart from performance, your uh, clinical diagnostics as well, which basically Mm -hmm. talks about the spectrum of these interventions that uh, it's the same human brain. It's the same nervous system. On one spectrum, mm-hmm. you're optimizing for performance. On the other spectrum, there is disease or uh, there is essentially uh, how you can look at an ailment as well, especially